Okay. Good morning, everyone. Hope you are well and happy bank holiday May weekend. Very exciting weekend. I hope that you're going to use tomorrow wisely. I guess if you're a student, you're going to be just studying all day, not enjoying any of the sun, locked away in a room revising. The rest of us look to look very smug at that point and say, we're not students, we're going to be out enjoying the sun. And so uh, hopefully that brings some tension in the room. Um, within the bank holiday weekend, obviously we get to uh, continue in our series. And as Gus said, this is kind of the last one, although we're going to sneak another element to the fruit that last series next Sunday, which we'll talk about next Sunday. But today marks the last part of us looking at this incredible series we've been on since February uh, entitled Fruit That Lasts, where we've been looking at how our faith and trust in Jesus in his life, death and resurrection doesn't just give us a, a kind of ticket of hope for the afterlife, but rather is actually going to make a difference to our lives now and cause our lives to be characterized in ways that both do us good, but also do good to all those that we come into contact with. And if you like, they get characterized in fruits, fruits that aren't of our making, but are rather of God's making. And so we've been basing ourselves in a bit of the Bible in a book, a letter that was written by a guy called Paul called Galatians. And in that, he describes these fruit, these characteristics that are to mark our lives as fruit of the Spirit, fruit that actually come from God. And in it, we've used this, these two verses in Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23, week on week, to be our springboard from which we launch. And so I want us to briefly look at those again. I did think as it's our last one, I thought for those that are regulars in Oasis, if you're not regular, I wouldn't expect you to do this. I thought we could do a quick memorization one. We've done it every week. Let's do it now, but I'm not going to put us through that. Rather, let's get straight in. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. What we've seen week on week is that as we've sung a song about, in our rooting in God, a God who is love, actually it causes us in our rooting in Him to have a life that then is fruitful, that is characterized by fruit, that a life that then isn't kind of just one big apple of joy, but rather a life that is revealed through many different fruits. That it's to be a life that is revealing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we've seen week on week, this isn't that we kind of somehow kind of stick them on like badges, thinking, well, I, I kind of make this happen and stick a bit of gentleness on today and hopefully it'll work out. No, it's rather that because this is something God is wanting to produce from within us, that God by his Holy Spirit is working within us to lead us in this. But also we then get to uh, take that lead, that we get, get to respond to his leading and say, actually, this is how I want to live. I therefore want to cause myself from, from the inside out, from my thoughts to my actions, to be characterized in this way. And over the past couple of Sundays, we've looked at the whole fruit of self-control. We haven't done that because we think it's more important than all the others, but rather because of the day and age that we live in. That we live in a day and age where it's all about the immediate. And therefore, the fruit of self-control can quickly get something that we misunderstand or just want to forget. But whereas, as, whereas as what we've discovered is over the last couple of weeks that self-control isn't about self-mastery or self-denial. It's actually about understanding that we have appetites that truly and only can be satisfied in Jesus. 
And therefore, self-control is always about understanding that we're not going to settle for second best in something. We're rather going to go to the one who ultimately provides everything we've ever wanted, desired, or need. And that's Jesus. And therefore, just as we've done in worship, and this is why it all flows on, and you could think, well, do you guys kind of manufacture this? No, we don't. It just kind of happens. And you think, well, at that point, surely maybe that's an evidence of God. You see, God's already been speaking to us about saying, is our gaze on him? Is our gaze being fixed on him? Are we treasuring him? Because it's only in him that we can be satisfied. Going to be those who are self controlled, not looking to the temporary, but looking to the eternal. And it's with that in mind that I want us to look lastly today at self control in respect to purity. And not just purity, because that can feel just too general. I want to zoom right in and look at sexual purity. And at that point, as soon as I say sexual purity, there's going to be a whole host of different things. Some of you are going to think, man, it's my first time in church, and I knew they'd do something like this. Hang in there. For others of us, we're immediately feeling uncomfortable because you're thinking, did he see what I did last night? Is he out to get me? There's a nervous laughter there. <laughs> um, and there's others of us thinking, oh man, this is bank holiday weekend. Let's lighten up. I reckon because it's bank holiday weekend, this is the kind of subject that we need to look at. Because actually, it's this point that we think, man, I feel relaxed. And therefore, in my feeling of relaxed, I can actually do, deal with the real. I'm not going to deal with just with the pressure of everything else. I'm just going to actually say, this, this is the reality of who I am. See, I reckon it's good to look at sexual purity because of the culture we live in. Because there's a cultural backdrop to where we're trying to live out this fruit that lasts. Whether we like it or not, we live in the UK in the 21st century. And therefore, as such, we have a backdrop in terms of uh, kind of sexual purity and how we seek to live in a self-controlled way in that. See, that backdrop is feast with a uh, kind of recent history. And by recent history, I'm not going to suddenly do a massive history lesson. And you also think, but recent history for me is the last five years. I want to take us a little bit longer than re that than recent history. But recent history always is within the past kind of 100, 150 years. And so we'll take that, shall we? So if we take it from the Victorians. You see, in the Victorian age, there was this big title, and that is that God is dead, therefore what? And the Victorians therefore kind of pushed these boundaries, left, right, and center, of trying to discover what could life be like. And there were massive, massive advances within culture. Some of them beneficial, some of them to detriment. Some of it was still fueled by a sense of responsibility out of faith. And some of it was questioning, say, well, if there isn't a faith, then, one, then what? And for many people, as they discovered this sense of, well, if God is dead, then what? There then became this question of saying, we, we don't want to lose actually the morality that faith produced. But we want to try and live in that without faith, without a reason behind it. And what that caused to happen is this, this kind of tension a tension that just built up, like if you keep blowing into a balloon. At some point, if you just keep blowing into the balloon, it will burst. And so what happened is then at the turn of the 20th century, the children of the Victorians started to think a bit differently. If you like, the explosion occurred. Where well, suddenly they discovered that actually, maybe if our minds are truly freed, 
from the concepts of a God and a deity trying to bring something upon it, then if our minds are truly free, then why should we be trying to cage them with some level of morality? And so minds need to be liberated in order that people can explore who they truly are. And if you look at the kind of start of the 20th century onwards, you'll see that that was what governed thought and the repercussions of what quickly happened from that point on. And then if you like lit the kind of fuse for an explosion that was to hit in the 60s, this kind of sex revolution occurs where suddenly everyone says, actually, why not give it a try? Everything's permissible. Everything could do you good. Go and try. Go and explore. And so that's what's happened. So in the 60s, it kind of caused this explosion, this liberation. And then from that point on, things just escalated. Escalated to a point of the day in which we live in now. Where suddenly, actually, morality isn't judged by anyone else. It's individual. What feels good, do it. But there's starting to be some questions to say, but try not to harm anyone else. And then it causes us to live in this day and age. It's all sounding quite fun, isn't it, at this point in time? Everyone's like, yeah, it's like holiday weekend. That we cause to live us in this moment where actually we understand that sex sells. Whether it's a deodorant that's quite cheap but smells all right for guys called links, that you can look like meat, spray it on, and suddenly hordes will come towards you. That you can buy a sofa... I saw a sofa advert on the bus the other day, and it was just a sofa with, like, a woman in her underwear on. And I thought, what? And he thought, obviously sells. <laughs> see, from sofas to mouthwash, you can see that from mouthwash, even there, you find a promise that if you don't use this mouthwash, then maybe you, you won't end up looking like this. And then you find out what she did look like when she opens her mouth, and oh, yeah, she should have used mouthwash. Sex sells. You find it in terms of technology that you can gain access to anything, anywhere, at any time. We find it in a position with, then with that technological advances, the rise of pornography. In order that every second on this planet, 2,000 pounds is spent on internet porn. 25% of the searches on the internet are about porn. 24 million sites are dedicated to porn. And do you know what the day of the week is of the highest number of views? Sunday. See, attitude is changing to it. See, it used to be, oh yeah, that's, that's like the teenage boy in the corner. No, there's just not no, that many of them. They don't have that much cash. And then we think, oh, it's the guy thing. No, it isn't just guys. This is about girls as well. Sexual purity isn't a male issue. It's a whole issue. It's for men and women. Last year, this explosion happens. A book sells more copies than any other in, a ch in such a short time frame. Becomes the greatest seller of, of probably all time at that point. Fifty Shades of Grey. When I first heard of it, I thought it was describing my hair. And then quickly discovered it wasn't that. And was something quite different. That trilogy that was to come was to be purchased primarily by women in order to someday just take the myth away from something and say, actually, this is all permissible, all acceptable. You then find that you go down to the ballroom, you just walk through and you find that there's something that used to be about saucy parties for, for hen nights or for, for women of a certain age, of Ann Summers. Then you find it becomes a high street brand and no one bats an eyelid. 
at this point, we have to understand this is the backdrop we live in. The backdrop we live in, which actually there's starting to be questions asked. Questions are asked that you only have to turn over the newspaper daily to find out that there's another 70 celebrity where people have said, well, that, that should have never happened. And others at the time comment and say, but it was just what everyone thought was okay. And society suddenly says, how do, we, how do we get to this? You find those moments where suddenly they, we discover that 70% of 11-year-olds have seen a pornographic image. It's a long man. The innocence is being lost. For me, I start to take notice when uh, a newspaper I enjoy reading but is quite left in its views in terms of The Guardian. When you get somewhere like that saying maybe there's a problem, you start to kind of think through what. When you've got a newspaper like that which tells the story of a, a mother kind of discovering that her 12-year-old son was told by his friends to watch an image and to watch this movie that they'd all got on their phones. So he'd gotten home, gone up to his bedroom and watched this movie on his phone. He then can't sleep for the next day and night. After two days, he eventually gets the courage out of shame to speak to his mum. This is what he says. Mum, I know I should have never watched this, but I now feel like my innocence is lost and I'll never get it back. I'm 12 year old. And the writer of this article, this mother, is just saying, what have we done? What are we doing? And he says, into that backdrop that we therefore, even on a bank holiday weekend, get to step forward and say, well, well how are we going to bear fruit then? How are we going to bear fruit that lasts, that actually is about self-control in sexual purity? Because actually there's a world out there that's saying maybe there's a different way. Maybe there's something else going on here. And for us, we have to say, even with that backdrop, the call is there, and how will we therefore respond? So the call is there to pursue purity. That's what the self-control and purity is all about. And Jesus calls us to that, but calls us in a way that, that sets the bar pretty high. Sets the bar pretty high that when we can read it, we can quickly skim through it because we think, man, that, that's pretty full on. Man, do you not know the culture we live in? But this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. In other words, do not have sex outside of marriage. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. And in that, we can take it that Jesus isn't just talking to men. He's talking to women as well. So anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery within his or her heart. See, Jesus raises the bar in terms of our pursuit of purity. and says, man, I'm not after just the actions that you take. I'm not after a bunch of people who can live in a society like ours and say, hey, do you know what? Yeah, I see everything that's going on, but, but I'm not having sex outside of marriage, but maybe we are, and at this point we think, man, are you looking at me, Adrian? I'm not looking at you. And what you're going to find through this morning is I'm never going to point the finger at anyone apart from myself and say, man, are we pursuing, am I pursuing sexual purity? Because in there we're called to have self-control. 
But in it, Jesus says it isn't just about actions. I'm not just interested in that. I want to know what's going on in your heart. I want to know where you're looking. See, in first kind of take, we can look at this and think, well, Jesus, this sounds a lot like self-control equals self-mastery or self-denial. It doesn't seem to be a bit about kind of seeing that you've got an appetite and how that ultimately can be satisfied in God. This seems to be you saying, oh, come on, deal with the outside. No, this is Jesus doing the exact opposite. This is Jesus trying to say, look, you've got to understand that where you look is actually seeking to satisfy the desire and the appetite that you've got. And therefore, it isn't enough just to say, I'm not doing that in terms of action. It's that you've got to understand what's going on in your head. That he used that word heart, the word heart that Jesus uses there is it's talking about the core of our being, the, the kind of core that governs everything that we then do. And Jesus is saying, actually, it's in that place that I'm interested. It's in that place that your appetite's coming out. It's in that place that I want to speak to you and say, actually, how are you doing this? Where are you looking? Because if you're looking somewhere, let's call it for what it is, of where you're seeking to satisfy hits us hard. He hits us that moment that just wakes up and says, what? I could look at someone. I could be entertaining a thought of someone, and that's as good as doing the action. It doesn't feel as good. But Jesus is the same. The bar's raised. Why? Because Jesus is always after inward transformation. He's not after just an outward conforming. You see, Jesus, he wants us to live understanding. If we're to pursue sexual purity, it's everything to do with where we look. And where we look with our appetites and where we're satisfied. And therefore, before we kind of read the rest of that verse that was up there in Matthew 5, which if you're in a Bible and you're turning it, it's thinking, man, that's getting really heavy. It does get quite heavy, but before we get there, we've got to kind of pause for a moment and allow ourselves to reflect on what Jesus is saying, kind of where we're to look. Because actually, it's understanding where we're to look. It also helps us understand that there's some things that aren't wrong. See, there's a problem that can come is that actually when you get someone like me talking, and suddenly there's this backdrop of culture, culture, boo, 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 everything, boo, boo, boo. Oh, it's all horrible out there. Let's just stay in this, in this little suite and live here forever until Jesus returns. Like a, an airport departure lounge. Wouldn't that be good? No, it wouldn't be good. It'd be horrible and smelly. Um, it's just not going to be like that, is it? You see, the problem is that we can get to this point of thinking, oh yeah, sexual, the, uh, sexual purity actually is all to do with understanding that sex is, ugh, it's just not nice. Therefore, that's how we ensure we're not doing anything about it, because actually it's all not nice, it's all wrong, it's all evil. Now, that's not what we to see here. You see, what Jesus wants us to first understand is to look and know that sex is good. Sex is good. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, man, this isn't going to help me, Adrian. <laughs> you, you're kind of starting off the point saying, I'm starting to feel a bit convicted, starting to feel like uncomfortable, thinking you're pointing at me, and now you just say, well, sex is good. That, that doesn't help me. Well, no, we need to understand that firstly because actually it will help us then to see something else. Because I want us to first look and understand that sex is good. And after we've seen that sex is good, we're then going to see something that is better. And I promise you it isn't chocolate. So let's look at sex is good. 
Matthew 19, Jesus says this when he's questioned about marriage. He says this, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them, them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. See, Jesus is questioned about marriage, about what marriage is and what's the point of it. And Jesus, in all his radical teaching that he's been doing up to this point, you only have to read, as we've just been started, kind of delved into in terms of Matthew 5. You read Matthew 5 to 7, he didn't, Jesus didn't pull any punches. He kind of says this whole different way to live, where you think, this is radical. And then he gets to the point where he's asked about marriage. You think at this point, he can come and say something to either affirm with what's been or to set out a different course of what will be. What Jesus does at that moment is he affirms what was created. At that moment, the most radical thing that Jesus can say is actually say, actually, this is what marriage is about. It's about understanding that God created men and women. That he created men and women, they're of equal value. They're of equal value, but they're different. And that isn't rocket science. Look in the room, you can just see that guys and girls are different. Of equal value, though. She said they're different but equal. He then says, but actually God also has provided this way, created this environment that is for our good, that was a provision, a plan, a design of how men and women could relate exclusively. So Jesus then says, and this is why there's marriage. Where what? Where exclusively a man and a woman give themselves to each other and do what? become one now at this point we're going to have to be careful because we've just sung about being one with God and so there's some things that are right in terms of this expression of one and we're going to go on to see in some things that aren't right in terms of our one with God I don't want to be misheard on that but in terms of this expression of being one Jesus gets to this point says actually there's these parameters of understanding that actually within marriage, what God has designed it is in order that a man and a woman can exclusively give wholly of themselves, physically and emotionally, to one another at the detriment of anyone else. But it isn't something that they're going to say, I'll do this for you today and then someone else tomorrow. No, this is exclusive. This is a becoming one, as one together. That they're saying there's not going to be an area of my life that's guarded to you. I'm everything that I am, I'm giving to you. If you ever heard a wedding vow, it says that all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Saying I'm giving everything to you. I'm becoming one. I'm not saying right. You can have this bit, but I'm going to keep this bit still for me. No, no. What Jesus is saying, a marriage, what's intended is it's the giving of themselves to each other. And part of the the safety of that giving together of each other, giving of themselves to each other is to understand that part of the demonstration of that becoming one is sex. Just to say, if you're here and you're under 18, I apologize to keep using the word, it is going to be used lots. Um, if you're over 18, I apologize for using the word lots and it may feel, make you feel embarrassed. I'm all right with it. Um, but in it, it's that, that moment that what sex becomes then is actually the demonstration of a man and a woman saying, we're becoming one. I'm holding nothing back. This is a demonstration of us being exclusive together. 
This is a demonstration of us enjoying one another together. This is a demonstration of us sharing physically and emotionally together. And therefore, it's there. It's there to be enjoyed within the pattern, within the design. Not outside the pattern, not outside the design. Why? Because God's designed it for our well-being. See, God thinks sex is good and he provides an environment for it to be enjoyed in. Man, there was a book of the Bible, Song of Songs, that when it was written, like 11, 12-year-old boys in the Jewish culture and under were not allowed to read it because it was too saucy. Man, some of you, if nothing else, you're going to go back and think, man, I'm going to read Song of Songs. But in it, it's that within that, now there's a great verse in Song of Songs, it says, do not awake love until you're ready. That's the point of that book. It's saying actually what's to be enjoyed here, what's to be enjoyed in terms of that becoming one within the confines of marriage, within the pattern of marriage, is never to be opened until you're ready for that. So don't go looking for it until you're ready. Now for some of us at this point, your head's spinning, you're thinking, man, you've just defined that God sees sex as good, but he's made this pattern and definition of where it's to be enjoyed within marriage. And at that point, you're thinking, what? What do I do with that? And then you've also defined marriage as between a man and a woman. What do I do with that? And for some of us, this is it. This is the point at which we stop and we pause and we say, this is as far as I can go, Adrian. Because at this point, we have to pause and say, I need to now investigate whether I believe God is after my well-being. And if he is after my well-being, then I believe that I'll start to submit and say, you're my treasure. And therefore, whatever the cost, I'm going to treasure you. I'm not going to force you into that position. You have to get there yourself. So for some of us, it's that pause moment. For many of us, it isn't that pause moment. For many of us, it's to understand that the the end point isn't here. It isn't whether we're we're part of this definition of marriage or we're outside of that definition of marriage. Actually, the end point isn't this. The end point isn't that God thinks sex is good. The end point actually is that there is something better than sex. Jesus' quiz on marriage again says this in Matthew 22, verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus loved to use moments from day to day life and say, do you know this? It's going to look like that when I finally get this earth as it's meant to be. See, our faith and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection doesn't just mean that we get forgiven. doesn't just mean that we get to know that we're guilt-free. doesn't just mean that we won't die ultimately. Actually, it promises that we have a sure and certain hope that Jesus is going to return to this planet and renew everything. It isn't that we're going to escape this planet. It isn't that one day we're going to take into this mystical cloud city. It's that actually Jesus is going to return and cause God's kingdom where God dwells to be fully present here, so we will see God as he is. There's one writer said that what it will look like is if you can think of the most precious, beautiful thing on this planet, maybe it's a moment, an experience, maybe it's a kind of place that you visited. When God gets this planet as it's fully created to be, as it's restored into its full glory and beauty, it will cause that moment, that experience, that place to feel like a caterpillar compared to the butterfly that has emerged. See, having faith and trust in Jesus promises that there is hope 
hope of something that will come. And Jesus said, what we've got to understand about what is to come is that when this new heaven comes onto a new earth, part of what that future will look like is that there will be no more marriage. Therefore, if God used marriage as a place where exclusivity, oneness could be enjoyed between men and women, part of that oneness that could be explored and demonstrated through, through sex, therefore, surely we can surmise that if there's no marriage, there's no sex. And for some of you, you'll get, it's just getting worse and worse, isn't it? You, you think, not only have you taken to that point of thinking, right, you've got to kind of work out, you know, are you just even committing adultery in your heart? And then you said, oh, yeah, sex is good, that's not helping me. And now you're saying that actually, when we finally meet Jesus, there won't be any sex. And so, let's do the math. If I never get married, does that mean that, that I'm never going to get that? Jesus says, yeah. Why? Because there's something better. See, if sex is that demonstration of becoming one, and that's what marriage causes us to enjoy, why does there not need to be marriage once we get to be with God forever? Maybe it's because, or maybe not just maybe, I believe it is because, actually in that moment when we get to be with God forever, we suddenly realize that actually he is everything that we've ever needed. We, never, we no longer see, as Paul writes, uh, through a glass dimly. We see as we see one another. Suddenly God in all his radiance, beauty, glory, magnificence, wonderfulness, uh, otherness to us, we're suddenly able to stand before and see one who we knew we were rooted in love in and who now is stood before us and we realize he truly is love. Love that we've never experienced before. And it isn't a love that's distance, it's rather a love that is towards us. Well, we know that we're unconditionally loved and accepted by this one. And suddenly we know we're not at the edge, we're with him forever. We are now one. And that oneness with God, that oneness that we sung of of the song where we can think, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I am one with God. Yeah, sounds good. We're never going to sing that in the same way ever again, are we, after this morning? Because we're suddenly going to realize actually what this is promising is the exclusiveness of relationship I've ever desired on this planet. It's only ever truly ever met in God. It doesn't rubbish what we've got in our marriages. It just shows that one day they'll be overwhelmed, overshadowed by what is to come in God. It also means that if we're not married, it means that actually we get to understand that one day we will be with one, which will cause us never to feel the pain again of it. That sometimes when we can feel alone, it actually says, no, one day we'll be with him. And we'll never notice that again. It also means that we can draw on that today. I know there's people in church, this church who have to draw on that daily of understanding that I am one with God. I have this hope to look forward to. And I call on it now and I ask Spirit, would you cause me to know the intimacy, the comfort that that brings. And rather than being in society someone who stands out and says, oh, but aren't you going for the ultimate? Actually, you know, in the church, they become the ultimate. I say, now these are people who've understood that what it is to feast on God, and therefore we look and we say, what an example you caused me to pursue after God. That's why Jesus, when he was quizzed about this, said, you know what, it's better not to get married. That's a hard one to read, isn't it? Better not to get married so that you can just concentrate fully on God. But isn't that someone who is married, isn't married as like some weaker partners, rather they become someone we say, actually, yeah, let's, let's catch what they've got. 
understanding that what we enjoy in a marriage is just going to be overshadowed, overwhelmed one day by what we'll see when we finally see God face to face. See, it's that in mind that brings us back in terms of the implication of how we pursue purity. See, this is the other bit of what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for all your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. See, God wants us, Jesus wants us to understand that where we look has ramifications. What we look to to satisfy us can be destroying to us, can be destructive to us. Now, let's be clear, this isn't saying that actually if you mess up sexually, it's going to cost you your ability to have faith and trust in Jesus and him to be enough. is isn't going to suddenly take away your salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is using language to get our attention. What he's saying is that actually this isn't going to take it away because ultimately the only way we are saved isn't because of something we've done. It's all because of what Jesus has done. So it can't be undoing that. Therefore, he's saying something different. He's getting us to understand that how we live now will have ramifications in the future. Paul writes it like this. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, saying about someone who's lived kind of just compromising. He says, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames. See, Jesus wants to understand that one day we will meet God face to face. And he doesn't want any one of us to be those that feel like we've escaped like through flames. flames. Rather, he wants to be us, be those that actually see Jesus and see him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we use this negative and says, actually, in your self-control and sexual purity, remember perspective, remember where you're looking, remember the cost that this could have. But it's also in the positive of what we've just looked at. It isn't just that we're thinking, oh man, I better not mess up, otherwise this might happen. Actually, it's also the positive of understanding I'm not going to choose to be satisfied kind of temporarily in this because I recognize the satisfaction I get eternally with you, Jesus. And therefore, I draw on that. And therefore, in this invitation of us understanding with the perspective of what we look at, it then causes us to be ruthless. It's where Jesus, Jesus uses again these expressions that are incredibly painful and hard to hear. Where he says, chop it off, gouge it out. Man, Jesus isn't at this point talking literally. It isn't, you know, if it was that, you'd suddenly see a load of people and as you walk into churches with no eyes and no arms. No eyes and no arms. It'd just be nuts, wouldn't it? So he's not talking that, but he is talking about ruthlessness. That when we hear this, it isn't that we think, oh yeah, this is all right, it doesn't really matter. But Jesus is saying, no, no, this does matter. Be ruthless with it. Don't kind of entertain it. Keep in mind what is to be. And therefore be ruthless with what is now. Don't be temporarily satisfied. That's the thing with sexual desire. I promise you, whatever it is that you do, it will bring some level of satisfaction. But it's temporary. Therefore be ruthless with it. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe it means your use of the internet. 
Maybe it means in terms of changing your friendships. Maybe it's about getting accountable. Maybe it's about stopping having sex. Maybe it's about what you watch. Maybe it's about what you wear. Maybe for some of us, it's about finally stopping seeing ourselves as someone of no value. And if we're allowing others to treat us like that, but rather understanding that God sees us with intrinsic value, infinite value, and loves and accepts us, and therefore we cut away sense of feeling we have no value in order that we'd know that we can pursue purity. I therefore say it means that we need to, one, battle for our mind. We haven't got time to look at all these. Romans 12, 2-2. Just write them down if you've got a notebook. Do not conform any longer. In other words, we need to change our ways of thinking. second one is that we need to remember our freedom Romans 6.11 it isn't that there's something that we're involved in that we cannot be free of because that then therefore means that Jesus' death on a cross and resurrection has limitations and as far as I read it it has no limitations it frees us from everything what we get to do is live a life then of following him of understanding and enjoying more of that freedom it isn't that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus suddenly everything switches and we think oh yeah I'm free in every area No, there's still some stuff that dogs us, and therefore we keep coming back and say, Jesus, am I really free here? How can I live free here? Renew my mind. I live in your freedom. And lastly, we don't do it alone, that the Spirit is at work in us, giving us the power to live the life we want to. But not only the Spirit, but Jesus places in community, in order that we know we never have to do anything alone. We can call on others to walk with us. We're left with a question then. Will we be those who seek to give ourselves in living a life of self-control in purity? That's a rubbish question, isn't it? Because every question should be an open question, surely. Every question should be an open question that allows me some sort of gray area where I can kind of respond to it. That doesn't, does it? That's a horrible question because it's either yes or no. Will we be those who seek to give ourselves in living a life of self-control in purity? Yes or no? I respect you if you say no. I respect you if you say yes. I have little respect for those that try and sit between the middle. For some of us, for us to get to a clarity of answer, we need to investigate this. I don't want us to feel shoehorned, saying, you've closed the question down. I'm just trying, I don't know, I don't know. Fine, investigate till you do know. Do you know what I think, though? For you guys, I'm going to let you off the hook. Investigate. The ones I'm not laying off the hook today are those of us who know that we are followers of Jesus. And we just know as soon as I said that word sexual purity, you just started to unravel a little bit. You started to feel that sense of God wanting to produce the fruit in you that he wants to. That sense of the spirit saying, come on, I want to lead you in this. I know what this means. What will other people think of me? Can I really start to say no to that? Can I really be that ruthless? But then Jesus, I see. I see who you are, and I want that. I choose to be satisfied in you. It's to you I want to appeal to this morning as we run out of time and I get told off. But we'll deal with that. I'll get told off, okay? Because this is important. I remember aged 18. I remember someone speaking in a church like this and getting to this point. At age 18, I remember thinking, do you know what? How I'm living doesn't match up. 
What I watch doesn't match up. How I treat my girlfriend doesn't match up. I remember thinking, what will everyone think about me? And then I remember thinking, who cares? Because actually, Jesus, all I'm concerned about is what you think. And therefore, I want to say, marker in the ground time for Adrian Hurst. Today, Jesus, I say no more to that and yes to being satisfied in you. And for some of us, you're like Adrian Hurst, age 80, and you need to say no more. Yes to Jesus. Let's not worry about what others think. Why? Because this is the safest place ever. Best community ever who just have fought one another. No one's judging. And if they are, all you do is just say, man, didn't Jesus say something about that? About kind of planks and specks? Go figure. You know, it just unravels at that point. So we don't need to worry about anything else. What we need to worry about is our heart. Say, Jesus, this is who I am. Should we stand? Can we close our eyes just as a way of just not getting distracted by others? I just recognize that for some of us here today, today is a moment where we need to draw a line in the ground. For guys and girls. And saying, I'm not going to live in compromise here. I want to pursue you alone, Jesus. I recognize that needs to be ruthless. I just come and I say, Jesus, would you come and help me? And so in a minute, I'm just going to ask us haven't reflected on that. You're a really brave thing. I'm going to ask us to put our hand up where we are. And then I'm going to pray for you. And then after I pray for you, we're then going to end the meeting. Just so you can then feel like not everyone is going to look at you. And then what's going to happen is as we end the meeting, people are going to shuffle around. Some people are going to get kids. Other people are going to ask other people to get their kids because they're going to want to respond. Others are going to get coffee. But for you who've responded, you're then going to kind of come over and hang out with me. And then we're going to get to pray for you because I don't want you to go feeling alone in this. So we respond. One, two, three, put your hands up. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for those who've responded. I'm just going to pray for all of us, pray for these guys. Well, God, I thank you for how you don't allow us to settle for second best. That Jesus, your greatest desire is that we would be satisfied in you. And I pray for those that have been brave enough this morning to say, do you know what? I don't want to. I want to draw a line here, and find my deep satisfaction in you, Jesus. I pray, come and meet them. I pray for all of us. I pray, would you cause us to not squander what you've given? Would you call us to not settle for second best in our pursuit of our appetite of you, Jesus? And I pray, God, would we be known increasingly as a community who reveal this fruit that lasts, understanding that we're rooted in you, and in you we truly are one. Amen.